This morning, kind of remind us of our context. I want to address a few words of encouragement that I see in the text that we just covered. And then next week, we will kind of fall back into our, shall we call it, normal pattern. Um, Pastor Dan will be doing the exposition from Acts 18 uh, next week. And so then we'll continue our journey through the book of Acts as we... Um, as we typically do. So Acts 17, you'll remember that Paul is preaching here on what is called Mars Hill. This is the seat of learning in the city of Athens. This is where philosophers would gather um, to hear a new philosophy, to evaluate it, to determine whether that philosopher could continue to teach and, and, and as were preach that philosophy in the city. And so this is an opportunity for Paul to uh, address the gospel to a group of people here. You remember the last we took a that he gives to being aware of where his audience is coming from philosophically, understanding how he can properly address the gospel to them. You come to the end of Acts 17, and in verse 32, uh, Paul has just gotten to kind of the crux of the gospel. He has explained the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so he has explained the person and now the work of Jesus Christ. And he explains that, of course, with the resurrection, because you can't have the gospel without the resurrection. And it says in verse Father, we need to be, we need to understand faithful to that. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, we come here to the end of Acts 17, and we've just seen Paul in this um, teaching a philosophy that was unknown to the Athenians. I want to remind us that we live in a society, if you live in America, Western culture has moved over the last few centuries from, from basically a Christian-ish type culture. I don't mean by that that everyone is a, a genuine believer, but, but a, a Christian worldview-informed culture to an increasingly post-Christian culture, or a post-modern culture. Now you say, what is, what is post-modernism? Well, post-modernism is a philosophy that follows... Modernism. Modernism looked to the Enlightenment for the source of knowledge, that the access of knowledge through empirical evaluation. Postmodernism was a philosophy that followed on the heels of that and actually, in many ways, rejected some of the tenets of the Enlightenment. The central, the central idea in postmodernism is that that truth is a construct. 
that that truth is not absolute, but it is really the function of a society or certain authority figures in a society declaring what truth is. And therefore, truth is, is something that we can't access with any certitude. In fact, the most extreme versions of postmodernism would posit that there is no such thing as absolute truth, and the next close um, approach in postmodernism is that there may be absolute truth, but it is inaccessible. It's not possible for us to know absolute truth. Well, that has tremendous far-reaching implications, and although um, although a generation or two ago, postmodernism was really just something uh, of philosophers, it has now trickled into our society. And in fact, many in our society embrace postmodernism, perhaps even without knowing what it is. So you'll hear little buzz phrases in our philosophy, you know, well, we can't really know the truth. Well, that's, that's postmodernism kind of on the popular level. Or you'll hear people, hear people refer to your truth or my truth, right? That is, that is a, a subtle wink to the postmodern philosophy that absolute truth cannot be ascertained, right? Or there are different types of truth, like different, different gradients of truth. Like this is all postmodernism. Now, I bring all of that up to simply point out the fact that, that Paul is talking to a pluralistic uh, worldview that, that really gave no foothold to any one truth, as it were. They were willing to give a hearing to all versions of truth, right? And in many ways, there, there are some similarities between the audience that Paul is preaching to and the audience that we speak the gospel to in this day and time. So all of that context reminds us of the reality that we looked at a few weeks ago that we need to be aware of those to whom we are speaking. And it's interesting in the scripture that you will find different ways of giving the gospel. Now let's just be clear, I'm going to kind of emphasize different ways of giving the gospel, but at the outset I want to remind us that there is one gospel, there are indispensable truths in that gospel, so what is modified is not the gospel itself, but the way in which the gospel is given. At times in Scripture, we will see the gospel presented in a theologically structured way. One fine example of this is, is the theological structure that was given largely to a Jewish audience. Because you remember that, that the Hebrews had been raised to understand the Old Testament. They were monotheistic. They believed in one true God. And the delivery of the gospel was predicated on that understanding of who God was, who God is. And so many of the appeals to Jewish audiences are, are very theological. They are very structured. They are very rooted in the Old Testament. And of course, perhaps the best illustration in the book of Acts is the one when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. He stands up. He says, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and take heed to my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, right? They're talking about the coming of the Spirit. 
This is only the third hour, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to explain, to defend what is happening with the giving of the Spirit by hearkening back to something that the prophet Joel had predicted. So he roots his message in what they already understood to be true about God. You know, you'll encounter people in your society, especially if you live in the quote-unquote Bible Belt portions of the country, who have a general understanding of God. They may even understand certain contours of the gospel. I've found that there are some people who are religious that when we can, we can understand where they're coming from, we can really point out certain things they already know to be true as we give the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean they're believers just because they believe in God, just because they, they uh, say that they have some allegiance to Jesus, just because they call themselves quote-unquote Christians does not mean that they're genuinely converted. Yet there is a basis there upon which we can build a case for the gospel. So many understand the justice of God, the judgment of God. Many understand the concept of sin. These are all things that are important to understand as the gospel is explained. Well, we find Peter in this passage. We find Paul throughout the Old Testament speaking in the synagogues to a Jewish audience, appealing to what they already know to be true. So at times we find the gospel presented in this theological context, in this theological way. At other times, we find that the gospel is presented as a testimony. The gospel is presented as in, in, in a testimonial fashion. I, I think, again, and we're, we're contemplating the book of Acts, and I think, again, of, uh, of a passage that we've not yet gotten to, and that is Paul speaking to King Agrippa. And in, verse 20, in chapter 26, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. You understand that in the presence of Agrippa, he would not have just been given free reign to speak openly, but he was given permission. So Paul, of course, is going to take advantage of this situation. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused. Now, Paul goes on, and this is an interesting treatise that that Paul launches into, and it's all it's his story. It's his testimony. It is how he came to understand who Jesus was and trust in him and how Jesus completely changed his life. I mean, here was someone who was persecuting Christians at one time, who now had embraced the way of Christ. What a powerful testimony. I would just remind us that this is a powerful way of giving the gospel. You know, maybe, maybe you feel challenged, you, you have a heart to give the gospel to others, the, the truth of Jesus Christ to others, but you're hesitant. You're not sure exactly what to say. You're afraid that you're going to stumble over your words. Well, one of the most powerful things that you can do is say, as the, as the hymn writer said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I, I see. When we tell others what Christ has done for us, even even the understanding that we came to as we believed the gospel, maybe, maybe something like, you know, I used to believe that my religious deeds would, would get me to God, would, would earn me favor with God. And what I came to realize through the Bible is that my works are, are worthless. The very best I can do is not good enough for God. That something else had to happen. 
And maybe this morning you're in that same situation. Maybe you're thinking that your religious deeds are good enough and you need to come to the recognition that the turning, the repentance of the reality that, that our works can't save us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Your testimony is a powerful thing. I would just encourage you that this is also a way to share the gospel in a way that, that gives the message, that gives the truth, that, that is accurate, yet is not quite as, uh, it doesn't come across as accusatory, perhaps, as some other means of giving the gospel. You can tell people what happened to you. You can tell people the, the change of heart, the change in mind, the work that Christ did in drawing you to himself. And this is what we see in Scripture. We also see um, uh, the woman at the well after she finds Christ. She goes to those who are in the city in John 4 and says, He told me all that I ever did. When the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. And many more believed because of his word. I mean, she literally brought people to Jesus, right? We use that phrase kind of in a figurative sense uh, in, in respect to giving the gospel. But that's literally what she did. Um, she, they said, Now we believe... Not because of what you have said, but because we have seen him for ourselves. So she gives a testimony. She tells what had happened to her. And what a wonderful way to give the gospel that we see in, in, the, in the Bible. We're already in Acts 17, and I won't take the time to reiterate Paul's entire message, but we have to point out the fact that this was a very nuanced, theological, uh, philosophical lecture. I mean, Paul appeals to their own philosophers, appeals to their own poets, appeals to the logic of what they believe in order to make a case for this one that he says is the, the God that you are worshiping, not knowing who he is, to the unknown God. And so Paul, as he understands the philosophy of the day, as he understands the context that he's in, is very careful to give a philosophical presentation. Might I just say that this is kind of the proper way of doing apologetics? The proper way of doing apologetics is to recognize the philosophies that our audience, the people that we're talking to, recognizing the philosophies that they, they understand and believe and, and building on that and sometimes even contradicting that. Paul does that, right? I mean, he addresses their own idolatry. He addresses the, 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 real, the contradiction in their worldviews, right? You, you say on the one hand that uh, the God cannot be contained in a shrine, yet you look to these shrines as your source of hope. Right? He points out those contradictions in their philosophy. And so this is what Paul is doing. He is... He is uh, doing apologetics. He is presenting the gospel in the context. Now, it is important for us to be thinking people. As believers, if you're a believer this morning, it is important that you understand the roots of your faith. You see, faith is not contradictory with reason. It is a reasonable faith. And I would dare say that many Christians need to just kind of get over this whole check your brains at the door attitude towards Christianity. It is faith. It is believing in that which we cannot see, but it is not unreasonable. It is not unfounded. And so we would do well to understand, to do some reading, to do some study, 
even to face the hard questions from our unbelieving friends. Wrestle with them. Give careful thought to them and come up with good answers based on the scripture. At the same time, recognizing, as Paul does, that the message of the gospel still needs to be heard. No one has ever been argued into believing. No one has ever been reasoned into believing. Yes, we need to answer with reasonable answers. But we understand that in the end analysis, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be offensive to some, and that's what we see in this passage. So he's faithful to the gospel, but he does so in a philosophical context. Often the gospel is given in scripture by using an illustration, and there are many, many examples of this. The one that comes to my mind is Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. That this illustration is given by Jesus. He uses this illustration, and in many times, and this is important for us to understand, that the gospel is presented in a conversational way. Question, answer, dialogue, back and forth. I have uh, John 3 here. You remember the story of Nicodemus, right? This religious man who Jesus has a dialogue with, followed by John 4, when Jesus has a dialogue with a woman at the well. And I would just say that, that too often we fall back on this, all right, you sit there and listen, and I'm going to shoot the gospel at you with both barrels. As believers, we need to be willing to have a conversation, a, an opportunity for dialogue with our unbelieving friends. And so be faithful in giving the being faithful in giving the gospel does not preclude a conversation. In fact, I think in many cases it involves a conversation. A friendship, what we often call around here a redemptive relationship. If you're, if you're here, you're listening, you're watching uh, this online, and you are not yet a believer, perhaps you've, been, you've felt like the gospel has just been thrown at you rather than having your questions answered. I would say that we as believers don't always do this well. We don't always have a dialogue well with our unbelieving friends, but that's what we desire to do. If there's a way that we can help you on your journey, um, I've mentioned in past weeks that we have a four-week Bible study, um, that anyone in our church would be happy to take you through week by week to answer your questions, to look in scripture, to probe, even to ask those hard questions. And in fact, one of the reasons that we encourage using this tool is because it gives people who are engaged in this Bible study opportunities for conversation. And so we see the gospel presented many times in scripture in this conversational way. Well, what are the responses to the gospel? We saw these a couple weeks ago. We come to the end of Acts 17 and we see uh, beginning in verse 32, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The reality is that the gospel not, will not be accepted by all. Paul makes it clear in Scripture that the gospel will be offensive to some. Some will mock. That is expected. It is an offense to those who want to cling to their own way, to cling to, to their self-made uh, religion. The gospel is offensive because it calls on us to lay aside our way and to depend completely on Jesus Christ. So some will mock the gospel. It also contains supernatural elements. 
right? And, and, and many will reject that. I mean, it was the, the resurrection from the dead that caused this mockery to come to Paul. Some will contemplate the gospel. We see that here at the end of Acts 17 as well. Some, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. May we be patient with people. May we recognize that the first presentation of the gospel may not be the one that, that lands on good soil. Or perhaps it's landed on soil and it's, it's a slow growth. We need to continue to patiently uh, tend to that. Paul uses the illustration of some sowed, some watered, God gave the increase. There is a growth period in the hearts of many. When the gospel is given... And so may we keep the conversation open. May we be willing to talk again with those who contemplate the gospel. And then may we be encouraged. At the end of chapter 17, it says, Some joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite. Now, what is an Areopagite? Okay, remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about Mars Hill, the Areopagus. This was the, the place where the leaders of the city would evaluate new philosophies. What was the Areopagite? Could we just say this was kind of the Supreme Court of the land? <laughs> I mean, these were, these were the judges. These were the ones that, that sat to evaluate the philosophy that was being given. So those very ones that heard Paul... Among them, we know that at least one came to faith. What, a, what an encouragement. What a blessing. What an exciting thing to know that the gospel is powerful. Paul said what? Not many wise, not many noble are chosen. But there will be a few. There will be some who hear the gospel and who will embrace it. It goes on to list... Um, others that, that joined them. Uh, we see a woman named Damaris and then others with them. How many? We, we don't really know exactly. But we know that there was fruit from the faithful giving of the gospel. And so I want us to be encouraged this morning. I want us to recognize the fact that not all, not all planting bears fruit right away but that we ought to be faithful to the gospel in whatever form it takes. Whether it's a conversation that goes on even for months or years with a neighbor, whether it is an opportunity to, to present the gospel in a philosophical way or, or to a religious person who's not yet believed. May we be faithful in giving the gospel and be encouraged by this. As we are faithful, God will give the increase. There will be fruit from the gospel. And so this morning, I don't know what your situation is. Perhaps you're this morning, you've not yet embraced the gospel yourself, but the Holy Spirit is doing a work. I praise the Lord for His patience with so many of us. As, as He continued to extend His mercy to us, may I just plead with you that today is the day to come to Christ, to depend on Him completely, to turn from yourself. But my friend, if you are a believer this morning, take heart in the gospel. Be encouraged that, that God gives fruit. And here in this message that Paul presented, I think is a word of encouragement for us, that some believed. May we be faithful as we continue to present the gospel. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. 
May we be encouraged by these brief thoughts from this passage of Scripture. May we be faithful in telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. And may you use us to that end in your service. We offer these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.